Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, I'll say it again today. There is so much political news uh, racing at all of us that um, we're never going to get to all of it in one show, which is why I'm glad, actually, we're on the air five days a week uh, these days. Um, Let me get right to introducing the panel so we can begin our conversation. Uh, Tamar Hallerman is with me, as she is every Tuesday, uh, the senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Tamar, it's a real pleasure to have you with us. Thanks, Bill. It's so hard to keep up with all these developments. You are so right. It, yeah, it, and, and I suspect that you, like me, are probably glad that you are no longer having to worry about uh, covering the news in Washington these days. I know. My, my successor, Tia Mitchell, has been just racing these last couple yeah. weeks, months, years, and you're absolutely right. <laughs> We're also joined by Emma Hurt, who, of course, is a reporter for Axios Atlanta, uh, Emma, thank you for being with us. Remind everybody about where they can read Axios Atlanta. Axios.com slash Atlanta. You can sign up and see it every morning in your inbox. Just like that. Easy peasy. I I get it every day, and I'm glad uh, that I do. Uh, Audrey Haynes is back with us, a political science professor at the University of Georgia and, and the director of the Applied Politics Program, which trains students for jobs in politics. Hello, Audrey. Good morning, Bill. How are you? Fine. And Frank. And finally, Tammy Greer, professor of political science at Clark Atlanta University with us, too. How are you, Tammy? I'm great. good this morning, Bill. Thank you for having me. Sure. All right. So we're going to start today again looking at, at where things stand in terms of the implementation of Georgia's uh, fetal heartbeat. Uh, uh, measure. Now, I want to stipulate something going into this conversation. I absolutely understand that there are many people out there, excuse me, including some in our listening audience, who are overjoyed by the uh, overturning of Roe, who have been fighting, they say, for life for a very long time, and those people are thrilled. At the same time, That's not the conversation that we have to have right now because it's the fact that abortion will no longer be available to women probably in in, in Georgia, except in a very limited way moving forward and across the country uh, in many red states, that we have to talk about what the impact is going to be on those uh, women and their families. Um, So it's not that we don't understand that there's a great deal of happiness uh, around the pro-life movement. But we need to talk about what it means to the women and their families who, in fact, are still looking for abortion services. I hope that makes sense to everybody out there. Um, so let's start on that, Tamar, with this. Um, we're now, we now know that the uh, Federal Court of Appeals here is, now, is asking both sides um, of the lawsuit to try to block uh, uh, HB 481 from going into effect to submit arguments 
for how Dobbs impacts um, whether or not the law here should go into effect. Talk to us about that a little. Yeah, absolutely. The attorneys on both sides of the case have until mid-July to submit that paperwork. So we're assuming that, you know, we're, we're really not going to see action on this in, until the later half of July. But everyone I'm talking to, um, you know, everyone is expecting the heartbeat law to go into effect after the Supreme Court ruling. We're seeing right across the border in South Carolina, their six-week abortion ban is just now going into effect. I believe that happened yesterday. And so we're fully expecting it to come through in Georgia. It's just a matter of when. And in the meantime, I think there's a real question for a lot of abortion providers in Georgia over these next couple of weeks. Um, you know, today in Georgia, abortion is still legal for, for anyone who needs it. Um, do they keep going until, you know, the, uh, this comes down from the court? Or are we already going to start seeing kind of a pulling back in services? And I think it, it might depend on where you are in the state and which provider you're going to. Um, Emma, on our show yesterday, Representative Mary Margaret Oliver um, made an interesting point. She reminded us that um, HB 481 not only has a ban against abortions after a so-called fetal heartbeat is detected at around six weeks, it also contains this personhood uh, measure, which establishes the rights uh, that a fetus would have as being just like those of anyone else in the state of Georgia. And there are questions as to whether the court has to rule on all of that or whether they might be able to sever one from the other and move forward. The point being, Mary Margaret said, it's more complicated here than it is, say, if we'd had a trigger law, Emma. Right. And before I uh, talk about that, I just want to make sure, I mean, we all know this, but the term fetal heartbeat is a misnomer in both directions, yeah. right? It's not a fetus until eight weeks. And the heartbeat is not like there's not a heartbeat until a heart is fully formed, which is like maybe week 10, I believe. So just so we have that disclaimer out there. Um, the personhood component of this law is really uh, kind of wild if you if you read it and think about all the hypotheticals um, that that some have talked about, you know, in the law. And I think the supporters of the law talked about, you know, now pregnant women could qualify for child support. But there's also, you know, the theory that the, uh, an embryo could be counted in population uh, census. State Senator Jen Jordan, who's running for attorney general, though, is kind of taking the hypotheticals further and saying, well, you know, what if an undocumented immigrant comes to Georgia? Can you deport them if they're pregnant? Because then their baby is a full person and a resident of Georgia, citizen of Georgia, perhaps at that point. So it is, there are a lot of questions about it, and um, it, it's a very important thing to remember as we talk about this law, that it's not quite as simple, it's not at all as simple as just, just about abortion, actually. Um, so I guess the first question that we answer today, Tammy, is one that yesterday we weren't certain about. How quickly could Georgia's law go into effect? And as Tamar just pointed out, we're going to have a delay of at least until July, well, beyond July 15th. That's when documents are due in the uh, Court of Appeals. The court will then have to take those into consideration. They also will then have a decision to make. Will we? If you don't mind, let me just take this step by step and then throw it to you, Tammy. Um, when a lawsuit was first filed to block this uh, measure, uh, it went to Steve Jones at the district court level. He um, agreed 
with the plaintiffs that it needed to be blocked because he said it was unconstitutional. It, of course, then went up to the Court of Appeals, where the Court of Appeals said, look, we're not going to act on this until we learn how the Supreme Court is going to rule on Dobbs. Fine, they've ruled on Dobbs. Now the appeals court has a choice. They can decide whether they want to overturn Steve Jones' initial district court ruling, or they can kick it back to him for further consideration. The point of all this is to say it's going to be some time before abortion is all but banned in Georgia. Correct. And uh, going back to your um, question to Emma about personhood that Mary Margaret brought up yesterday, um, it's important for us to uh, also take in consideration that the 14th Amendment has all persons born or naturalized. And so if we look at personhood, personhood uh, contradicts the 14th Amendment to the, con- to the Constitution. So I'm wondering if um, attorneys are using that as an argument, um, you know, to, to argue against particularly Georgia's um, HB 481 when it comes to um, personhood. It has been argued, or I hope it has been argued, that, you know, if um, a fetus or an embryo is given the so-called constitutional rights that is the opposite of what is in the 14th Amendment about being born or naturalized in the United States, then it appears as though that fetus or embryo has more constitutional rights while in the womb than the actual living mother does or person carrying the fetus or embryo. So I think it's important for us to really understand the impact that um, I think so much of the conversation is toward the fetus and or embryo and not toward the living, breathing um, mother or person carrying the child um, or embryo or fetus. Um, and, and, And we're taking away that person as an entity and almost as if that person is a vessel for rather than being uh, protected under the constitution. I think we have to really be careful um, about how we contextualize that because again, personhood is not protected under the constitution. It is born or naturalized. Audrey. Uh, Well, you know, where do you start? There's so much to say. Just the conversation that Tammy just um, mentioned. Uh, I would approach this as a a political scientist who studies sort of the dynamics of campaigns and politics that right now we need to consider that Dobbs is almost as, um, you know, uh, significant in the sense that Roe was. There is going to be a tremendous response to it. There's going to be political and legal activity. And I would say that it's very fluid. You know, I think there's a lot of things that we have to remember. Number one, heartbeat bill, you know, it barely passed. So there's a, there's some dynamics there. And the law, I, I want to mention too, and I'm going to preface everything by, that I say in the fact that I am not a constitutional scholar whatsoever. I'm a behavioralist. Um, and there is so much that originalists and the Alito and Thomas um, uh, opinions really leave out. You know, if you study um, the framers, you've got the Ninth Amendment. They could not enumerate every right. I mean, it basically says there are a lot of rights that we don't include. 
And one of them could be the right to privacy. And a lot of what's going on now is prefaced on the legal arguments that were made in Roe. But if you think about it, there are probably other legal arguments that could be made that haven't been made. And I think we're going to see some of those coming up uh, in some of these cases. Uh, there are a lot of very bright people. Um, and, you know, more than anything, politically, we need to also look at how the dynamics are. They're going to be different in races for different candidates. But right now, Democrats tend to be more unified on the notion of choice and reproductive rights. Republicans generally are a little bit less so. I mean, there is real division in their party. And I would tell you that young Republicans in particular separate from their party. And on the Democratic side, it's mostly people with lower education who actually fall into um, the, the pro-life wing. So my contribution right now is the things that we're saying and the issues that we're raising, this decision has opened a Pandora's box. And there are all kinds of um, unintended consequences that they have not thought of. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. By the way, to just uh, 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 reconfirm what you just said, there are other ways you can uh, go after uh, uh, abortion, uh, uh, the legality of abortion, whether it's um, <clears throat> through any kind of constitutional uh, uh, measures or the state of Georgia's own enshrinement of privacy as a fundamental right of all Georgians. So we're going to watch how that develops. Tomorrow, I want to talk more specifically about the partisan politics of all this in a couple minutes, but I think it's really important to look at a story that you uh, wrote the other day. Um, in, in which you uh, essentially lay out for us how important it is at this point for Georgia to be able to assess the resources available to pregnant women uh, and infant children and the problems we have had in providing them the services they need, especially if abortion is going to be all but outlawed in the state. Yeah, I mean, at this point, we have to expect that there are going to be more births in Georgia. Um, so what does that mean on our current system? You talk to plenty of folks who say that the system as is, even before Roe was overturned, was woefully inadequate. And they point to all sorts of statistics that childhood development experts say are kind of key, to, key indicators of whether a baby can get a healthy start in life. And for so many years, um, Georgia's ranked really low when it came to things like birth weight. Uh, preterm birth, infant mortality, and of course, maternal mortality, which, you know, I've written about on the past, and, you know, we've talked about in the show. 60% um, of the state's uh, maternal deaths were preventable. This was a bipartisan state panel that uh, published that stat in 2019. And Black women are three to four times more likely to die in Georgia um, in the year after they have their baby. So um, it's something that I know the, the legislature will be under immense pressure to, to fix um, over these next couple of years. You talk to Republicans and they say, look, we've done a lot to address this, including extending uh, Medicaid for women up to a year after oh. giving birth. That isn't fully implemented yet, but they say that will, will go a long way. But I'm sure they're going to be under even more pressure to act. Um, and just going off of what um, Tammy and Audrey were saying, I mean, you know, it, it really has opened up a Pandora's box politically for our leaders. Uh, just this morning in the jolts, my colleagues were writing about how Governor Kemp is being pressured to not only enact the heartbeat law, which has personhood protections in it, but to enshrine that in the state constitution, which would have all sorts of legal ramifications. 
Yeah. Uh, and again, I want to get into those partisan political considerations in a couple of minutes. But but uh, before we do, uh, Tammy, let's expand on what Tamar just talked about in terms of her article. Let me just quote from her article very briefly. In 2020, Georgia had the country's fourth highest percentage of babies born with low birth weights, according to the Centers for Disease Control. The state was seventh for preterm birth rates in 2020, had the 15th highest infant, infant mortality rate, 7% of Georgia children live without health care, which is the 13th highest in the country, according to the Annie Casey Foundation, uh, based on Census Bureau data. And of course, Tammy, I think those uh, data uh, certainly cover, in many cases, what black women in this state uh, face in their pregnancies. Tammy, you're to, muted. Uh -huh. In addition to, Bill, that... Um, you know, 78 counties in Georgia do not have an OBGYN. 63 counties in Georgia do not have a pediatrician. Um, 148 out of the 159 counties uh, in Georgia are medically underserved, um, either have medically underserved areas or a medically underserved population. To uh, piggyback on what Tamar said, so to put into context, um, in Georgia, because Georgia in 2018 was uh, ranked 50 out of 50 when it came to maternal mortality rates. Um, and so that means that in Georgia, um, white women were 24 times more likely to die in child, um, uh, up, up to one year after childbirth um, than other industrialized nations. And to put it into the three to four times likely, for black women, that means 72 to 96 times um, more likely that black women will die up to a year post childbirth compared to every other industrialized nation. That's not including the um, 14 to 15% of Georgians um, who are uninsured. Um, the Georgia has not expanded Medicaid. Um, to include, you know, the closing of hospitals, particularly in rural areas. The metrics for healthcare in Georgia prior to Dobbs has been astonishingly sad for the state of Georgia. And now you, you're adding um, more stress to the healthcare system that was already stressed. It is interesting to me how we are, how the Republican-controlled General Assembly and constitutional leaders inside of the state can marry both of these issues together, um, wanting to implement HB 481 and having, you know, an atrocious track record when it comes to health care in the state of Georgia. Emma? And, you know, I'll, to go back to what we've talked about and alluded to before and, and you know, that's been discussed on this show, like, Republicans were not unified on this bill. I mean, Sharon Cooper, the chairwoman of the Health Committee in the House, skipped the vote on this bill. She did not take a vote either way, and she's the face of the um, move to extend Medicaid to uh, mothers postpartum. And so, as Governor Kemp said, when, when I asked about a total ban upon abortion more recently, he said, remember that bill only passed with one vote to spare. Uh, we're, we're sticking with that. But as we as we know, the pressure on Republicans to go further is high now from activists. Um, and the question becomes, what happens 
next year, if they're in legislative session, what kind of pressure is there? Is there a Governor Kemp next year? He will, if he is elected, would be in his second term. Would he, you know, how would how would that play into anything on this issue? And and at the same time, um, you know, what will the the makeup of the General Assembly look like? And, and could they get something even stronger than this this bill that barely passed through? So, Audrey, let's talk about all of this in uh, the context of the 2022 election campaigns. Um, Stacey Abrams, of course, has been all over media uh, ever since Friday afternoon uh, talking about how she will protect the rights of women uh, to uh, choose abortion if they uh, believe that's right for them uh, and has been condemning uh, Governor Kemp and other Republicans for taking that right away. Now, I may have missed something, and I'll certainly listen to what anybody tells me about this, but while Brian Kemp put out, his office put out a very a, a, a statement very quickly after the ruling came down, he really hasn't been particularly out there in the public talking about how glad he is that Dobbs, in fact, overturns Roe. And, and I wonder if that's because of what Tamar and Emma have just talked about, which is... Republicans aren't quite sure where they stand on this, but more important, Hemp's going to need uh, suburban women uh, to help him win this election, and he might be a little reluctant to take uh, too big a public facing on this issue right now. Well, as I said earlier, I mean, there's an interesting dynamic and there's some fluidity right now to elections, too. Mm-hmm. When everyone was saying, you know, it looks pretty good for Republicans not too long ago. And I've heard people in the background, both Democrats and Republicans, talking about um, the Abrams and Kemp gubernatorial race and how Kemp was really well-placed to do well. And it might not be the contest that people thought it would be. Well, now we don't know because there's this new dynamic that is in there. And we really don't know how people will vote. And I haven't seen enough polls right now. As I said, it's very fluid. I would argue that your geography and your election, how safe your district is, is going to have a lot to do with how vocal you are about um, credit claiming for the Dobbs decision and um, you know, placing uh, this at the head of your messaging. When you have other things like inflation, the economy, um, you know, the support for the war, there are a lot of, of areas out there that some of them may want to use. Uh, depending on their competitive placement. I see that Emma has a, a, a point to add. Oh, I just wanted to, to say that Kemp did on the day of the decision call it a historical victory for, um, for life, close quote. So he has, I mean, he has spoken about it. I think what's, what's most notable in my mind is that his personal position has been a total ban with the one exception of life of the mother, but the bill that passed has, you know, exceptions for rape and incest and is only a six-week span. Um, so that, to me, is a notable distinction that he is not pushing for what he has said is his personal position at this point. Yeah, Emma, Emma, you're quite right. As I said, they issued a statement very quickly. But, but Tamar, he has not been out there in front of the cameras celebrating this victory uh, over the, choice, the uh, forces of choice. There are a lot of kind of top Republicans in Georgia who are mindful not to appear like they're kind of dancing on Rose's grave. Um, I think a lot of them know that 
there's a lot of different opinions in the Republican Party, especially among suburban women, especially, you know, looking at independents whose voice, whose votes they are going to need in November. Um, and what we've seen from messaging from Republicans lately is still kind of focusing on inflation and the economy as a way to hit Joe Biden, even if they are really personally celebrating on abortion. Um, we have no idea what the issue of the day is going to be. Uh, in early November, when voters go to the polls, a lot could happen between now and then. This, of course, will be a huge motivating issue for Democrats and I'm sure many Republicans. But there could be about 10 trillion other things that, that could be kind of the, the issue that sets the tone in November. So I'm not prepared to say that this is the golden ticket for Stacey Abrams. Um, often, you know, kitchen table issues can kind of be the, the big issue at the end of the day. So um, I, I don't know what we'll see in November. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And, and I, I don't think I've heard anyone um, on any of our shows since the ruling came down who suggested that this puts Democrats over uh, the top. But uh, I think it's safe to say, Emma, that uh, when people like Brian Kemp seem to sort of have the wind at their back for a variety of reasons, uh, this lessens the, the force of that wind, and, and we'll see how it plays out. You know, the right to choice against inflation, against high prices for uh, gasoline, um, against all the other reasons that Americans, Georgians, are unhappy with the direction the state and the country are taking right now. Right, and, and I think it's pretty clear, given how Democrats have responded, that they think that is the case, um, you know, the Congresswoman Nikima Williams yesterday said that the midterms are now a referendum on reproductive justice. And, and that's certainly how Democrats are couching it because polling shows that a majority of Georgians do support the right to an abortion. Um, but it's, it, again, what does our world look like in November? Uh, what is the price of gas? All of those questions. This is June. Uh, how, what's the staying power of this issue in, at the top of voters' minds? Um, yeah, I one of the things that was interesting yesterday uh, was that I saw um, quite a bit of folks who are left leaning um, having discussions about um, that part of this is Obama's fault for not codifying Roe into law in uh, when he was in office. And um, I think it's important for us to, you know, make clear that. Um, you know, President Obama, when he was first elected, first two years, um, that first you had a recession and you had expanding health care with the ACA and understanding that there were some challenges with getting the ACA passed. But not only that, I think it's important for us to be clear that the executive branch doesn't make law, that the legislative branch does. And when uh, liberals, you know, stayed home, in the midterm elections in 2010, in the presidential election in 2012, and in 2016, you know, this allowed for Congress to look the way it currently does. It also allowed for the court to look the way it does. Um, so there is a, a ripple effect. And I think it's important for us, you know, to understand all of these issues as a whole, rather than looking at in, them individually, and really to understand you know, separation of powers um, in the Constitution. 
I, I got to get to a break, but one quick uh, point uh, based on what Tammy uh, just said, Tamar. Uh, president Biden now is under pressure from Democrats to do something as the president takes some executive action that would protect uh, the right of choice. One of the proposals is can he establish or, or mandate that, that abortion clinics uh, be established on federal grounds in various states? Whether that can happen or not, He's under pressure to do something, even though, as Tammy points out, he doesn't have a whole lot of leeway without a Congress that supports him. And that's something he's, uh, you know, his folks have mentioned in interviews is that he's very limited. He's talked a little bit about protecting protecting abortion medication availability through the mail, um, kind of protecting the right to interstate travel for an abortion. But some of those other proposals, like putting clinics on, on federal lands, will be much more of a a long shot. And I think he's in a situation where he's not going to be able to make anyone happy. I got to get to a break. Um, We will obviously continue talking about this subject as developments occur uh, in the days and weeks ahead. But when we come back from a break, let's turn our attention to some other big political news happening in Georgia and in Washington. This is Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. Tammy Greer, Audrey Haynes, Emma Hurt, Tamar Hallerman join me for today's show. Uh, Tamar, let's look at another significant ruling, another controversial ruling that the court um, just issued yesterday. That's in the case of the Bremerton, Washington uh, football coach, uh, Joseph Kennedy, who uh, was fired because he was leading prayers on the football field uh, during high school, public high school football games. Uh, he went to court over it, made his way all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court yesterday said it was perfectly appropriate, constitutionally permissible, uh, for the coach to lead prayers. Uh, the uh, decision was, the majority opinion was written by uh, Justice Gor- Gorsuch. He said this, respect for religious expressions is indispensable to life in a free and diverse republic, whether those expressions take place in a sanctuary or on a field, and whether they manifest through the spoken word or a bowed head. This, of course, upsets a, a, a singular belief in this country of the separation of church and state. Um, and it's an issue that I think this court has showed that they're willing to kind of go against some precedent. Uh, we saw a ruling from the, the same court a couple of weeks ago having to do with with Maine and public money being able to go to religious schools. And I think a lot of kind of more secular folks are, are lamenting what they see as kind of the line be, starting to be blurred between uh, government and religion and, and schooling. I think it really goes to show just how far to the right this court has gotten, just how muscular the conservative majority is. Um, and I, I think it's kind of a, a sign of more of what's to come in the, the years ahead. Um, Audrey, one of the things that the majority said in this case was um, for young people, young people have to learn how to resist 
pressure in situations where they think they're being asked or told they have to pray, they have to join in prayer. That's that's an interesting diversion from anything having to do with their constitutional interpretations. Um, and, and I think it's important to talk about what the impact of this is in a very specific way. Um, if you're a young person in, in a school like with uh, Coach Kennedy, and he's encouraging uh, other students to come out and pray with him, and you don't happen to share his particular Christian religious beliefs, it puts you in a very, very awkward and potentially um, difficult place to be. Well, and it also enters this area where there's this huge movement on parental rights. And, you know, one of the things that has really saved the public schools is the notion of keeping them secular and being a place where everyone of all different backgrounds and beliefs can go and be educated. And for the longest time, Republicans have advocated that there's so much that needs to stay out of the public schools. Yet, again, this will go to my point about the courts and interpretation. They've always been open to politics, and right now they're very open to politics. They're viewed as an opportunity um, to, to move an agenda. And let me just put some of this in context. Gorsuch wrote um, an opinion uh, and voted, I should say, I should say voted, and um, talked about the discrimination against uh, LGBT uh, members in an important case a few uh, uh, prior to this. And boy, did he get pushback. And a lot of people are talking about how these cases that are coming up, you know, he is succumbing to political pressure coming from organizations like the Federalist Society who have spent the last 50 years fighting for this cause. So when we think about the court and real issues about uh, polarization, it's there, you know, and, and two things have really impacted these decisions. The court is best when it's a 5-4 a kind of balanced court when you have the the extremes represented, but you have this really good, thoughtful middle, and that's disappeared. And there's all kinds of data that shows that where the public is at is not where the court is at right now, real conflict. Now, we see that in the House of Representatives, but usually the court's not been quite so fluid. But it goes back to um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, staying in. Uh, you know, at a time where it was uh, questionable whether she would be able to to make it um, and and be replaced by someone like her, and then flouting of that norm with Merrick Garland, what the difference would be right now? It would still be a Roberts court, but now Kavanaugh is the median justice, and so a lot of people are watching him right now. So you know, there's a lot that's happening, but I'm going to say a lot of this is politics, and really not interpretation of the Constitution in some kind of, you know, meaningful doctrine or, or uh, uh, contextual interpretation. And, and, and there's a huge conversation around just that. Where is the Supreme Court headed? Clarence Thomas seems to now uh, have supplanted uh, Chief Justice Roberts as kind of the guiding force behind the court, along with the Trump appointees. Um, but, but Emma, to go back to this specific ruling on, uh, on on prayer in school. Um, what do you see as the uh, impact? How, how, how do you feel about the impact of what has been this longstanding principle of separation of church and state in America? Um, well, I mean, I do think that 
we are seeing a political impact um, immediately. Another another Supreme Court decision that all of our top candidates are are touting on the Republican side. Um, it's it's remarkable to see this kind of one after the other effect after Dobbs last week. Um, Speaker Ralston, who kind of rarely makes statements, came out yesterday applauding it as well, saying we pray before a meeting in the in the House every day, and and everyone else should have that right too. Um, so it, it is a, it, it's a, some, some, you know, maybe have issues with that, that lawmakers pray uh, before um, opening the legislative branch of government already, but to, to um, extend it into the realm of schools is, um, is a big change, but it's not one that Republicans in Georgia seem to have a problem with. So, so Tamara, I sort of took it down to this personal level of what if you're a young person who doesn't share the religious beliefs of, of, a, of a teacher who tries to get his classroom to pray. And that is a practical impact of all this. But again, let's take it back to the 50,000-foot level, or actually, please feel free to comment as any way you want. Again, this is a country founded by people who were fleeing religious tyranny and certainly wanted to enshrine the separation of church and state. Now, I understand that the justices say the Constitution does not talk about separation of church and state, um, but, but uh, Tamar, it has been, again, a fundamental principle uh, that we have taken for granted for literally centuries. Tamar, you're, you're, you're muted. Sorry about that. I mean, I can speak a little bit to my personal experience as a Jewish girl in the middle of rural Virginia. Um, you know, finding myself in moments like that where there was, you know, prayer. It didn't happen all that often, but it was kind of yet another reminder of how I felt like a little bit of an outsider where I grew up. And I'm sure that is going to happen to plenty of other kids. I mean, it was going to happen this decision or not, but um, this sure this surely doesn't move things in the other direction. Um, so, oh, oh, go ahead, Bill. I'm sorry. No, no, I want you to go, Tammy. <laughs> um, so the attorney for Joe Kennedy, the, the coach, um, he, he noted um, exactly what you just said, that the Constitution doesn't have separation of church and state, right? It doesn't have that explicit statement. Um, yet, you know, we note that there is the establishment clause where, you know, the state is not able to establish a church. And so I, I think that we should be very clear um, that while this court appears to um, no longer go along with uh, Stairs Dice and, and have precedent to be part of it, as Clarence Thomas noted in the Dobbs decision, right, that there are these other precedent cases that we should revisit. Um, I think that um, noting that the attorney is focusing along with the justices about there is no separation of church and state in the constitution is the opening to say that, you know, now when it comes to uh, this particular incident or using public funds for parochial schools, that this blurs the line um, and it may allow for what is clear to be separation of church and state in our minds to no longer be clear and visible. So, um, uh, Audrey, do you want to jump in? Yeah, and I just want to add, um, when countries start utilizing religion 
as their primary motivation for policymaking. You know, we move into areas where we talk about theocracies, and theocracies are inherently very authoritarian. They take rights away. Rarely do they expand rights. And that's something people talk about these days. Like, you know, where's the balance? Were these prayers non-denominational? Were they spirit? I mean, were they open to everyone? Or are they suggesting that there is, you know, one only one religion that you should utilize, whether that's the case anywhere. We have a lot of freedom of religion in this country. You can, you know, you can worship. You, there are so many opportunities that you have. But when the state becomes an advocate for a particular religions, and we, you know, we've seen we've seen give and take from both sides without real conversations about how we meet and help everyone uh, in in the best kind of public way. Uh, before we get to our final break, I've gotten a couple of really interesting notes from listeners as we're having this conversation. One person wrote and said that I didn't introduce this story quite correctly, that Coach Kennedy didn't encourage people to pray with him. Well, here's the fact of that. Um, during the course of this making its way through the courts, uh, Kennedy kind of changed his story, and so did the people who uh, supported him. It started out with him bowing his head and apparently having a silent prayer. But as things developed, uh, more and more people began joining him. Uh, they were encouraged to join him. It got to the point where um, uh, parents, not just other football players and students, came out onto the football field. A legislator showed up to pray at one point. And that story is one that hasn't been told uh, because it sort of works against this notion that the coach was simply trying to have a quiet, private moment to pray by himself and was fired for having done so. Emma, here's the other interesting note I got. What if Coach Kennedy were a Muslim and was in the middle of the football field reciting a prayer in Arabic? This is an extremely fraught issue, uh, and it... And it um... It upsets people in both directions. And again, I just I just am struck by how our Supreme Court is taking up so many really heavy uh, controversial issues in the same season and how the this is the decisions seem to be coming at the same um, split six to three. It is very interesting to watch all this unfold. And it is changing our whole landscape. Uh, on many fundamental issues we believed in in this country. Um, all right, let's do this. Let's get our final break this show out of the way, and we'll come back and talk a little about the January 6th committee with their surprise hearing this afternoon. You know, Tamari, um, yesterday on the show, a couple of us made the point that the January 6th committee was probably very smart last week when they announced a change to their schedule and said they would not have another hearing until, I think, around the middle of July, because they understood the Supreme Court was about to deliver some very significant opinions. They didn't want to see uh, their work completely overshadowed by what the court did, um, and so they put off the hearings. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere yesterday afternoon, we get word that they are going to have a hearing uh, today. What's really interesting about this, tomorrow is I didn't realize this until I did a little research. You, as a Washington correspondent, may have already known this. Typically, a committee 
in a public hearing has to give a full week's notice that they are going to have a public hearing unless they, they, they can establish there's an emergency circumstance for doing it the way the January 6th committee is. So this is fascinating. But it's even more unusual that they don't release a list of witnesses ahead of time. Yep. We usually, as you know, we're all making news coverage decisions about what to cover. That's usually really helpful. Um, we now know based on reporting from Punchbowl News and others that Cassidy Hutchinson, who was the top assistant to Mark Meadows when he was in the White House, will be uh, testifying. And that might be, you know, this could very well be the blockbuster testimony that the committee was really hoping for. They haven't had the most success in getting White House aides who could kind of were, were viewing the president in real time. They weren't getting that full cooperation that they were really hoping for. Uh, but Cassidy Hutchinson, you've seen some of her testimony on video being sprinkled in throughout the proceedings. She talked about Republican members of Congress who were seeking um, pardons. She's talked about Mark Meadows burning documents. Um, and so I think Democrats are really hoping that this can be kind of the big moment um, in these hearings. And it seems like she's really, you know, Cassidy Hutchison is much more open to cooperating than she was before. She recently switched lawyers. She actually had a Georgia attorney, Stefan Pasatino, who had been representing her until last month. He worked for the Trump White House and was still very involved in that world. So now that she's switched, it seems like she's even more cooperative. And I'm curious to see how many new bombshells we might be getting out of this hearing. Yeah, yeah by the way, I mean, it starts at one. Go ahead, Emma. No, I was just going to say, I mean, as Jamar said, she's testified multiple times already. So what is it that is new that is justification of this emergency uh, hearing, as you said, is obviously the huge question that um, we're all wondering. And I, I just do think it's notable, you know, watching Hutchinson's testimony, it struck me as well. Here's this woman in her 20s who's giving some of the clearest um, or kind of closest knowledge that we've had so far of what was going on in that office while her boss is not testifying. She's kind of our, our window, has been our window so far. And this is a person who started as an intern in the White House uh, in college. And it's just really notable that here she is um, providing this level of testimony, I think. Tomorrow. And one thing, you know, one bit of reasoning that we've heard from the committee about why they convened this hearing so last minute and it was so shrouded in secrecy. They talk about kind of credible threats against Cassidy Hutchison and, you know, threats of violence she, she might be receiving for her giving testimony. And that's surely a possibility. One thing I've seen is that they've talked to her in the last 10 days, um, you know, interviewed her again, especially since she's gotten new legal representation. So maybe she's saying new things. The committee also talks about how they've received new information from folks since they started the hearings. I'm, I'm curious how much really new is going to come out or whether this is going to be rehashing some of the things that we've seen in stories over the last couple of months with just more color. Well, you know, Audrey, th this committee so far has shown they really know how to present their case in a way that's logical, sensible, dramatic. It's It's been done very, very well. I mean, if, if you unless you really hate everything about them <laughs> you, and you don't like what they're doing, it's, it's hard not to at least acknowledge that they've done it in a, in a, in a smart, organized way. But John Dean made an interesting uh, comment about this on CNN last night. Uh, he said, this better be a blockbuster. 
witness. They better have something pretty powerful after uh, deciding to have this emergency hearing. And Dean pointed out something we talked about on the show last week, which was who is the Alexander Butterfield in the uh, in in these hearings? Remember, it was Butterfield who revealed the existence during the Watergate hearing of the tapes that the Nixon White House, President Nixon, had taped every conversation, and that led to Nixon's downfall. Well, and you know, I, I will reflect on what Tamar said. The fact that they have increased security, you really worry about the the status of this young woman in terms of, you know, her life and what will happen. But, you know, given the the documentary evidence that they have and perhaps new corroborating from it evidence that may go along with her testimony, there may be a blockbuster. It may be in reference to something that Trump actually said that, you know, um, is triggers who who knows Merrick Garland action on this. We do know um, that uh, uh, I can't remember who was it that just had their phone uh, taken up by the J- FBI. John, e- John Eastman. John yeah. Eastman. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Yeah. So there may Tammy. be some things that are actually happening. And I think more people are going to pay attention today because of the fact that it was rumored, like, you know, what's going to happen. Tammy. Yes. And not only that, uh, but Hutchison, you know, named names of the of um, individuals and very clearly naming names and not just being very vague with it. So it, um, you know, one could argue that she has way more information than she had uh, provided previously because perhaps of pressure from a Trump backed attorney. So it will be fascinating to watch today. So the hearing starts at one o'clock. Of course, GPB will carry it on all of our platforms, TV, radio, our digital platform. So you'll be able to follow it uh, there. Um, uh, Tomorrow, we just mentioned John Eastman briefly. Uh, John Eastman, we now have learned, did have his cell phone seized last Wednesday by FBI agents. We only learned about it because he went to court on Friday demanding that they give him his phone back. And he described a scene in which he and his wife were coming out of a restaurant. They were confronted by FBI agents who demanded he turn over his telephone uh, because uh, they obviously are investigating his role in trying to stop Vice President Pence from certifying uh, the election. Now, why is that interesting to Georgia? Because uh, DOJ also wants to talk to David Schaefer who was part of that scheme that Eastman hatched to create false electors in seven states uh, they, that, whose votes they wanted to overturn. Tamar? Yeah, and John Eastman is also a person of interest, or but maybe that's not right the term, but it is a person whose name has come up as part of this Fulton County DA investigation into Georgia. Yep. Um, you know, these fake electors, of course, are, are very much of interest to Fonnie Willis. And more and more evidence that's come out from the January 6th committee showing just how much of a quarterback John Eastman was in the days following the election, uh, talking constantly with Trump in communication with Rudy Giuliani, uh, Cleta Mitchell, one of the lawyers, trying to kind of organize this effort to get Pence uh, to recognize the, these Republican electors. All right. Um... Tamar Hellerman, you get the last word on a fascinating conversation. Thank you all for getting through all these subjects uh, today. Tamar, Audrey Haynes, um, Tammy Greer, um, and Emma Hurt, I appreciate your participation. 
today in Political Rewind. We, of course, will be back with another show tomorrow. And who knows how many developments will occur beyond Cassidy Hutchinson's uh, testimony by the time we start the show tomorrow. So that's it for us today. Um, Please take care. Stay healthy. See you all again for Political Rewind tomorrow. Bye, everybody.